Thanks, Charles. Uh, Wilson asked me to read from Jonah 1, which I think our bulletin says it's in the New Testament, but it is actually in the Old Testament, so we're not trying to reorder things, just for the record. Uh, and as I've learned, I'm getting older, so man, the words in my Bible are so small. I'm going to read from my iPhone, so I hope that's okay. I don't offend anybody. Hear the word of the Lord from Jonah 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone in, down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that way we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We believe that the Bible is one book about one God saving one people by one salvation. And what that means and why we had Aaron read this text in Jonah is because uh, many of these themes throughout Scripture are repeated because it's always leading up to Christ. You'll see a lot of parallels here in this text. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to verse 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind 
And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you know what is occupying our minds. You know the cares of our heart. You know the ways in which we need to repent. And you know exactly what you would have us hear this morning. And so we're trusting you that you are speaking to us this morning from this text. And would you do the, the, the spiritual surgery that we need on our hearts this morning? That you would continue to reveal to us Christ in all of his glory. And Father, that you would grant great faith to us as you call us to yourself. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you had to draw a picture of what peace or peacefulness looked like, what would you draw? This is exactly the type of contest two painters were in one day. They were going to draw a picture of what they thought depicted peace the best. And so one painter painted this sunset with the sun going down over calm water. It all looked very nice and the picture had a very calming effect. But the other painter painted a picture of a storm. In it, the sky was dark and there was lightning, thunder, and dark clouds rolling overhead. The picture showed the waves crashing against the rocks. Things looked pretty chaotic. But in the corner of the painting, at the bottom, were two big stones with a bird in the middle of them. And the bird was singing. Which one of those to you depicts peace best? It is interesting to think that hypothetically if the disciples were asked to, to depict peace on a painting, how would the first century disciples have painted that? Maybe they would have painted pictures of what a Jerusalem earthly kingdom would have looked like. Maybe it would be a picture of a David-like king upon the throne or victory over the Roman Empire as they got out from their oppressors. We see throughout Scripture that they often did not understand completely who Jesus was or what he came to do. That is what the book of Mark is all about. Mark, which is most likely the written versions of Peter's sermons, Mark is really after this big question, who is this Jesus guy? Who is this guy, and I don't say that irreverently, but who is this man who did all this stuff? There were a bunch of different eyewitnesses, and they were saying, here's what I saw, here's what I experienced. And it wasn't just me, it was hundreds of us, thousands of us. Really, the question is not, did these things happen? The question is, how do we respond to them? That's the question. 
Who is the real Jesus? What does he come to do? And how does he bring us true peace? This is what this text is about. Go back to verse 35. Some things I like to, I've told people over the years, please keep your Bibles open because it doesn't matter what I have to say. It only matters if it's according to Scripture. So back in verse 35, we read, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God all day, and now it was time to move to a different location. So he gathers uh, his disciples who were with him. He would have been in a boat already teaching the people who were on the shore. And he said, okay, it's time to go to the other side. Verse 36, so leaving the crowd, they took him with, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And I love this line right here. And other boats were with him. Now, why in the world is that line there? It's not like we have some sort of boat theology. You know, why make that statement? Well, you wouldn't make that statement if you were making this up. You would make that statement if you were retelling a true event. In other words, what is being relayed here is this. This happened... And it wasn't just me individually, but it was the people in the boat with me and the other boats that were there. In other words, Christianity is a very well-attested religion. People saw what they saw, and they reported about these things. We also see, uh, as the great windstorm arose, the waves were breaking into the boat. The boat was already filling up. You can... You can picture what's happening here because they're telling you about real life events. And I love this line. Look at verse 38. But he, talking about Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Why do you have to tell us about the cushion? Once again, we do not have a cushion theology. These chairs are great. Uh, It's comfortable. But we don't have certain cushion theology where we say this is why we need... No. What is happening in this text? It's telling you visually, vividly what they saw. That's what's happening. There were numerous, numerous people who saw the event that happened in real history 2,000 years ago on the Sea of Galilee. The question is not, did this happen? The question is, how do we interpret it? How do we respond to it? Today, we often live by our feelings. We live by the subjective. We tell people and we get frustrated with people because they're not validating what we feel. We've often heard it today that people say, well, this is my truth. I'm just living my truth and you're supposed to live your truth. But this would have been very different, very foreign to what they had back then. Because back then, before there was the massive availability of the printing press, or obviously any technology we have today, when you would communicate real events, a major component to this was the memory. The memory was really key. Matter of fact, there's a great book called Moonwalking with Einstein. I know that sounds very fascinating. But this guy uh, recounts 
uh, actually the history of uh, these memory contests that actually still happen today. And as he traced the history of uh, these memory contests, he began to see in his studies about how before the printing press, so much depended upon people having a good memory. Memory was considered a major ethical uh, quality and ingredient of an ethical person. So in other words, by them telling what had happened, they are actually willing to put their character on the line by saying, yes, I know this sounds just out there. I know this sounds truly incredible, but this is what I saw. There's eyewitness detail here. These events really happened. Now, what's interesting here is that you saw this word a couple of times. Look at verse 37. It says, and a great windstorm arose. And then all of a sudden, you see in verse 39, at the end, after Jesus calms the storm, it says there was a great calm. And then in verse 41, it says they were filled with a great fear. That word great is the same Greek word, and it's the word mega. It was a mega storm. There was a mega calm. There was mega fear. We see about this storm that this was something that was totally out of control. One thing we need to remember is that the people who were in the boat with Jesus, and most likely also the types of people in the other boats, they were professional fishermen. Not all of them, but certainly some of them. They had spent a lot of time on that sea. They knew it. So for them to be totally surprised about what's going on shows this is more than just a normal storm. But nevertheless, we do know this about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is situated where there are several mountains around there, and so it can be more prone to uh, really uh, gusty winds that can spring upon the sea in a quick moment. In uh, the uh, northeast, there was what's called this region of the Golan Heights. And often, this is where these winds would sweep down from. What's important about this is that the storm is not how we would typically picture a storm, where there's really dark clouds and it was raining and thundering. It would have been just a normal evening. They did not see anything that would have put them in danger. That's why they sailed to the other side. But what would happen is, is that these winds would come up out of nowhere and really stir up the sea to be anywhere from 5 to 10 foot seas. And if you've never been in anything of 5 foot seas and above, I'm just going to tell you, it is scary. These winds would sweep down and we see here a storm that is unlike any other storm. And I do think it's very important to note this. We must be careful about trying to explain everything away scientifically. Christians are not against science by any means. But we need to make sure that there are many things that science simply cannot explain. This is nothing less than something that science could attest to, but this is far more. And we need to remember that there is the supernatural and there are miracles, and this is what made it seem so absolutely radical that they had to put it in print. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, this was not merely a physical event. Benjamin Glad, 
says this, this storm represents the demonic host that opposes Jesus' inaugurating the kingdom of God. In other words, at some level, stirring up, somehow, someway, stirring up this very physical, tangible event, somehow it is represented as demonic activity. This is attested to in Ezekiel 32, where we see that this can happen. It's also attested to in Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. Several of us are familiar with this text. It says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirred up, or they were stirring up the great sea. Now listen to this. And with the four winds, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Those beasts were seen as uh, representing demonic power. Now, this is not trying to make, you know, it's not over-spiritualizing something. But what we see here from Scripture is that something is happening here where the demons are certainly trying to stop Jesus. We actually see more evidence for this because if you look at chapter 5, what's going to happen next? You see your, your, maybe you're heading there. Jesus heals a man with a what? Demon. Maybe you've heard it said before. Well, they just, there's just more demonic activity back then, back in those primitive days. You know, but we with our, our modernity and our science, you know, that doesn't happen today. That, that's not true at all. And I, w- I would humbly argue that would be very arrogant of us to say Here's what's actually happening. Why were there so many demons and why was there so much demonic activity that we read about in the Gospels? Because God had come to earth. Hell was let loose. There was no more soldiers in hell that were on reserve. They were all out because they knew that they had to stop him. And Jesus came to defeat hell's armies. Amen? That's what this event is. Jesus is dethroning Satan and his grip upon the earth. The demons obviously had much hostility towards God, towards the kingdom of heaven, and towards his people. Even now there is still ways in which Satan attacks us even though he is a mortally wounded enemy. Don't miss that Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and against the spiritual forces. That's why he gives us the armor of God. Spiritual warfare is not some weird voodoo type thing. It is a real, normal, everyday moment. Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he does try to do all that he can to hinder your experience of it. Nevertheless, we do have storms, don't we? It is interesting here that Jesus leads them into a storm. And what are your storms that you have? Maybe not all of them to this sort of magnitude. Obviously, this is a unique thing for Jesus in redemptive history that so many demons and were out to ruin his ministry, but we still walk through storms today, don't we? I'm just going to give a list of many different things because I think it's worth 
us being able to have faith that we can take this text and apply it to our lives. Maybe some of you are going through financial struggles, marital strife, parenting problems, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, addictions. Maybe there's just physical health problems. Maybe there's extreme internal anguish from spiritual warfare. Maybe there's actual persecution that you are facing from the world because of what you believe. Maybe you're someone who suffers from PTSD. Or you struggle with suicidal thoughts or dementia. Sleep disorders. You're fighting against uh, lustful thoughts and temptations. Maybe there's spiritual apathy or hopelessness. Maybe you're fighting against same-sex attraction. Maybe there's self-harm, discontentment, lack of thankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, judgmentalism, anger, bitterness, jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness. Or maybe you're parenting children with any of these difficulties. Or maybe you're a child of a parent who has any of these difficulties. All of us have different types of storms. And all of us are supposed to take this text with this Jesus and say, this is my God. Amen? And what's Jesus doing? I think it is, it is appropriate to have humor at times. God is a God who created humor. It's obviously got to be appropriate. But I do think this is appropriate humor. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Isn't that so fascinating? The disciples, they're losing it. And they feel like this is the worst of the worst. And Jesus is sleeping. One person says the stern where he would have been sleeping, most likely it was probably a little bit elevated on the boat so that the water that was filling up the boat, he would not have felt that. But he's sleeping amidst this huge storm. And as someone who grew up going deep sea fishing, look... When it's two or three foot seas, you can't sleep very well. But what is Jesus doing as he's sleeping? He is trusting God amidst the physical and spiritual storms. Amen? Indeed, he is the greater David. David who wrote Psalm 3 verses 4 through 6 where it says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. Isn't that amazing? Notice he says, I cried out, meaning I, something was going wrong, and I, I'm crying, I'm asking for help. But then he does this, I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Jesus Christ right here is the perfect picture of faith. And not only is he a perfect picture, a perfect model, a perfect example but as he is showing us what faith is, he is earning a righteousness for us. Jesus, in order to save us, he must perfectly fulfill all righteousness. He must be the perfect man of faith so that that righteousness that he has might be transferred to us. Amen? In this very moment, in this horrible mega storm, Jesus is earning our salvation. That's what's happening. 
I love, once again, Ben Glad says this, by sleeping during the storm, Jesus, the son of David, I love that, he demonstrates his perfect and unswerving trust in his father's protection in the midst of grave physical and spiritual danger. Here's what he says next. This is good. Jesus is truly walking by faith and not by sight. That's what's happening here. Jesus is walking by faith, not by sight. It does feel like God is sleeping at times during our storms, right? We often wonder, where is he? Is he doing anything? Is he focusing on more important people? Or is he focusing on those who have bigger storms? Surely mine are not as bad as other people's. Let me remind us that whenever we are talking with anyone else who's in a storm, don't downplay that storm. Meet them in it. They might be overreacting in some ways. But you don't just say, get over it. You enter the storm with them. That's what you do. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's not on the shore saying, you'll be fine. Trust in my sovereignty. He's in the storm. He's not merely the God who stays up there in heaven and says, here's the plan of salvation. He is the God who came down to this earth to earn our salvation. Amen? That is Christmas. He's the God who was willing to take on flesh to be in the storm with us. And life can feel like, it can feel like God's just sleeping. Matthew Henry the Puritan says this, sometimes the church is in a storm, and when the church is in a storm, Christ seems as if he were asleep, as if he's unconcerned about our troubles, and he doesn't regard our prayers, and he doesn't appear to be present to give relief. Do you feel that? And in these moments, we often question if God's real, if the Bible's true, if Jesus Christ is really who he is. But we need to be reminded of this. It is safer to be in the worst storm with Jesus with you than it is to be in the safest building without him. It is safer to be in the worst storm with Jesus with you than to be in the safest building without him. And I do think it's, I think it's worth us reflecting on some questions. Do we put most of our trust in who is in charge politically? 2024 is coming up. Do we put most of our trust in who is in charge politically? Do we put most of our trust in our job security or how much money we make? Or if our children love us enough that we can know for sure that they're going to care for us when we get older? Do we put our trust in our emotional well-being or in others' affirmation of us? Maybe we put most of our trust in either our boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. Or maybe we put most of our trust in having good physical health. Or maybe it's in being in a safe and secure neighborhood. Let me ask you a question. What do you put functionally, what do you put most of your trust in? It is a major cultural theme today, and it's even in the church, 
that we have let our emotions, that change all the time, we've let our emotions tell us what reality is rather than what God's word says. God's word should be informing us rather than us reinterpreting God's word. It is hard, though. And it's never as simple as to say, you'll be fine, get over it. Don't give that advice. (laughs) We do wonder, does he care? And that's exactly what they ask. Look at verse 38 again. He's in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Isn't that amazing whenever Scripture, we don't just read Scripture, it reads us. We ask that same question. Do you care? Because we think, surely if God cared, he would not allow this to happen. See, one of the things, we we actually don't question so much God's sovereignty. Maybe we do at times. We don't question his sovereignty as much. We question his goodness. It is very ironic here because they are treating Jesus as if he were like Jonah. Because Jonah did not care. Jonah was running away from God. And he did not care if the boat sank. Because if he died, then he would be able to avoid his God. They're treating Jesus as if he were Jonah. But Jesus is doing the opposite. He is sleeping because he trusts God will uphold him. It's also interesting because they call him teacher. Isn't it interesting they don't call him Lord? They call him teacher. What's a teacher going to do for you in this moment? Just lecture the storm? There's no offense to teachers, but it's just, what were they expecting? But it is interesting, maybe they forgot this. In Job 36, verse 22, it says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? If they realized what they were saying, they would realize that, yes, he is a teacher. He is God who is teaching them how to live in this moment. Amen? But we often ask God, do you care about my fight against this sin? God, if you were real, if you loved me, if you've saved me, then surely I would be over this sin struggle right now. Surely I would never experience those temptations anymore. Or we say... God, do you even care about my suffering? And if you did, then why have these physical ailments plagued me for decades? Even as Christians who can embrace Reformed theology, we still doubt and often practically deny God's sovereignty. It is one thing to appropriately worry certainly one thing to to worry about genuine concerns. It shows what you love. But it's a whole other thing to let anxiety reign. The obvious ways in which we deny God's sovereignty is things like this. We're people who try to control every detail of life. Or we fall very easily into despair. We're trying to bear all the weight of ministry or of a church. Or we're not able to put down our work. 
Or we're not able to let our children go off to college because we're, we're failing to trust that God can really keep them. We're far more often running to others for advice rather than to prayer. We're always running to the what-if land. We're always thinking about what next tragedy could happen. What if this? What if that? And we live in what-if land. And I've tried to tell people over the years, and I have to tell myself, nothing good ever happens in what-if land. We also deny God's sovereignty whenever we lash out at others who make life hard for us because we don't think God can redeem it. We hold on to bitterness when others sin against us. We take revenge on someone rather than leaving it to the Lord. But we also have what Jerry Bridges calls very respectable sins, ways in which we deny God's sovereignty. And that's just simply this, we don't pray. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul, who was first named Saul, that when he was born again, uh, Ananias was told how he might recognize who Saul was, and God said, you will know him because he's praying. We often can adopt the self-made mentality, or we treat ourselves as self-sustainable. We trust techniques and knowledge over trusting the Holy Spirit, or we become just full of busyness, or we react the opposite way and we're lazy and we just have a bunch of inaction because we have a sinful fear of failure. There are many ways in which we don't trust God's sovereignty. But one thing we must know is that amidst his sovereignty, he is never careless. Amen? He is never careless. Matthew 18 verse 14 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Scripture has an overabundance of testimonies about how God cares for his people. There is so much more evidence in Scripture about how God cares for us. We just have a hard time believing it. And that is a major part of our sanctification. A major way in which we need to grow in godliness and holiness is learning to live by faith rather than by sight. And we got to help each other do that. I bet you would have probably never thought that scientists could have discovered that diamonds can be made out of store-bought peanut butter. I, I didn't missay that. That is, yeah, that is weird. Some of you are like, I'm going to go hoard all the peanut butter. Apparently, because peanut butter is so rich in carbon, it can be put through a process where they remove the oxygen from the carbon dioxide while putting extreme pressure on the remaining carbon, which leaves uh, pure diamonds in their place. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it true that we often look at things as if it's just merely peanut butter and God sees a moment to make a diamond. We often feel like there's no way God can use this season of suffering for our good. But God knows exactly how to bring holiness and godliness in our lives out of trials. A major thing that this text is showing us is this. Jesus is the ultimate example 
of holiness and godliness. When we had failed, and when we continue to fail, he succeeded. Where Adam had failed, where Israel had failed, where all the disciples and the apostles, they failed, where we have failed, he succeeded. And he didn't just do it for himself. He did it so that he might have a perfect righteousness where he might invite anyone, no matter how faithless they are, where he would invite them to come to him and say, trust me, you have no works, but I have them all. And if you believe in me, this righteousness that I have earned is credited to you, and it's always yours. Amen? And you know what happens when you believe in Jesus? God now forever treats you as if you were as faithful and trusting as Jesus was. He's the perfect man, but he is also the perfect God. He wakes up. Look at verse 39. They, they, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. We just have to say this. When Jesus gets up, notice that he doesn't do some sort of magic trick. There's no potion, there's no grand gestures. He just gets up and speaks as if creation is supposed to answer to him. I'm just going to be honest. Something better happened after he says this. Can we be honest? Or he is a lunatic. Something absolutely better happened or we're done following this guy. But Jesus spoke as if creation answered to him. And the only other person who can speak like that is God himself. very interesting because when Jesus says be still, and I love this because I'm a veterinarian son or Scott, shout out to you being a vet. Literally when it says be still, Jesus is saying be muzzled. In other words, creation is acting like a wild animal. Shout out to Nathan. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, creation is acting like a wild animal or like a bucking horse. And he just speaks to it and he says calm down. Literally, some translations could say this. Shut up and sit down. Who in the world can speak that way? Who in the world has the audacity to look at something as winds are so massive? Which one of us would go out during a tornado and say, be quiet? <laughs> I think we would need to check someone into an institution. But he spoke to it, and he expected it to answer, and it did. He spoke to it because he is the God of all creation. And here's the thing. Creation responded to him. It says at the very end of verse 41, it says, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That word for obey literally means to listen under. It is responding to him and his sovereign authority over all things. 
Psalm 67, 65 verse 7 says that God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Psalm 89 verse 9 says about God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 106 verse 9, God rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the desert as through a desert. Or led them through the deep as through a desert. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Do you realize who this God is? He's the God who parted the Red Sea. And that's him. And as he brought a great exodus to his people in the book of Exodus, as they came out of Egypt, so Jesus is bringing the truer spiritual exodus here. That all those who run to Jesus Christ might be saved and delivered. Amen? When it says that the wind ceased, it, mean, it means that it calmed down sooner and quicker than the wind came upon them. Remember this. This was so magnificent of an event. This was so startling of a moment. That the disciples did not say this. Man, that was so ironic. They sat back and said, Whoa, wait a second. This, there's no coincidence in this. If we were in a bathtub stirring up water, we could not make it calm down that quick if we tried. Let alone a sea. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? It's a rhetorical question. Because there's only one answer. He is the triune God in the flesh. He is the sovereign one who was still sovereign even as he was sleeping on the cushion. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. There was a mega calm. A calm unlike any other. But it does make you wonder when you compare this with the book of Jonah. Why was no one tossed into the storm? Why was no one tossed into the storm? Jonah was tossed into the storm because that's what his sins deserved. God did deliver him, but he was tossed into the sea first. He was tossed into his apparent death. Why was Jesus or anyone else, why were they not tossed into the storm? Really, the question is, why was he not tossed into the storm then? Because he would go to a storm later. The God who sent the flood over this whole earth that covered Oklahoma and Japan, the entire globe was covered with water. And there was one family that was delivered on an ark merely because of God's grace. And do you remember why that flood came? Because God saw the wickedness that was in our hearts. And that was looking forward. And every time you see a rainbow, the Bible tells us what the rainbow means. Because every time you see a rainbow now, it is actually God's bow in the sky that reminds us that someone else had to come to be tossed into the greater flood and the greater storm of God's wrath so that we might be delivered. Amen.
Because we are the ones with wicked hearts. We are the ones like Jonah who would run away. And Jesus came and he went to the cross and he was treated as if he were the one who ran away. And he drank down the flood of God's wrath. He was tossed into the sea on the cross. And he drank it down to the dregs so that you and I would never have to drink it if we would merely come to him. Amen? Do you believe that? That's the Jesus of reality. The Jesus who is with us in the storms. And the Jesus who will bring us to an eventual calm one day that will surpass all other calms we could ever experience in this life. But the call for you and me right now this morning is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the only application I have for you. You need to believe. Don't put it off. Whether youth or older, don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day to respond. You can keep putting it off day after day after day. That's what Satan would love for you to have. But Jesus Christ is calling you today because you don't know when tomorrow is going to be your last. That's really cool, buddy. I love that. Today is the day of salvation. And if you come to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your Son. You did not send someone lesser than, but you sent he who is your image. He who is your glory. And we thank you that through his righteousness and through his atonement, we might be delivered and we might learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would transform us. We ask all this in your name. Amen.